How's everybody doing? My name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomist, and I'm here with Michael Lofton. How are you doing, Michael? Great. How are you? I'm doing great. So we're, we'll get right into it. So today, today we're going to be talking about the infamous, uh, according to some minds, the infamous Catechism of the Catholic Church, that, that darn liberal document that everybody keeps talking about. But uh, just a little bit of background for, from my interaction uh, with the catechism. So in being, in being received, uh, before, before I was even in that process, uh, in, in considering the Catholic Church, I would always hear from especially traditionalists that the new catechism is just a liberal document and it's trying to overturn our blessed catechism of the of the Council of Trent and that I shouldn't even read it. I should be reading the catechism of Pope Pius X. I should be reading the catechism of the, Catholic, of the Council of Trent, but I should not at all read the catechism of the Catholic Church. But then um, after I decided to convert and then in the process of, of being received, um, I had to read the catechism um, as, as my priest um, told me to do. So picked up a copy, uh, began reading through it, and I realized it is just a spectacular document, especially coming from the background of a Thomist. Just the sections on Christology were just succinct with wonderful definitions, great uh, footnoting the resources, just a wonderful section on the doctrine of God. It was it was just wonderful for, for myself and for uh, for my own devotion and my own learning. I was I was reading stuff that I had actually never even heard of, which was surprising for me. Mm -hmm. So I, I came to love the catechism. But then as I read read further, I mean, I read the section about um, about where it quotes Lumen Gentium about uh, the relationship between the church and Muslims and the church and uh, non-Christians and then the church and Protestant bodies. And, and I and it, it was fine of interpreting it in a, in a certain sense. I totally, totally got it. And mm -hmm. I was completely fine with it because I had dealt with Lumagentium, those issues mm -hmm. before. But then I got to the death penalty mm -hmm. and everybody's been asking about the death penalty. So mm -hmm. before before we get into that, we're going to lay down some prolegomena, kind of go over uh, the background of the promulgation of the catechism. Um, how it relates to other catechisms, the the weight of the propositions in the catechism and, and stuff like that. So would you uh, go over a bit for us before you get into uh, a background of the creation and promulgation of the catechism? Could you go over how how you personally have interacted in, in, in your own life with the catechism? When I was um, a Reformed Protestant, I was, you know, I, I began became interested in uh, Catholicism and Orthodoxy. And to study Catholicism, I had read the um, documents of the Second Vatican Council, the Council of Trent, um, and also the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, all cover to cover, you know, read the, read the whole thing. And this was prior to my reception in Catholicism. I figured that those would be good, good places to go to understand uh, the Catholic perspective. I found the Catholic Catechism or the Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, promulgated by John Paul II in 1992. I found, although the one that I read was a, a revised edition, um, incredibly helpful, very helpful. Of course, there's points that you'll read that you say, OK, well, how, how do I how am I to understand this? And you touched on a few, but you'll encounter that with any kind of. Uh, document that you read, you'll, you'll encounter that with, I mean, 2000 years of church history. You're bound to find some things that you have to do a double take at and say, OK, well, uh, how do I properly understand this? Right. I mean, you're, you're people are not normally born fully uh, in accord with what the church teaches. Usually they have to learn and and wrestle with it and then they assent to it. Um, but sometimes there is that struggle. But again, on the whole, I found it incredibly helpful because I wanted to know what what does what does the Catholic Church teach? If I'm going to convert to this thing, what does it teach? And so I found it to be a wealth of knowledge. So I like it. Um, does it have some weaknesses here and there? Here and there, uh, yeah, of course it does. Um, I think the Roman Catechism has some pros to it. And in fact, if you read the Catechism of the Catholic Church by John Paul II, that that edition it points often to the Roman catechism. It kind of assumes that you've read it and it definitely recommends that you read it. Um, so I think even the Roman catechism um, that you have promulgated after the council of Trent, I find it to have some strengths 
but also some weaknesses. And then I find the new catechism to have some strengths and weaknesses. And I think that they kind of complement each other very well. So I actually think that people should read both and be familiar with both and utilize both. I mean, that's what the current catechism does. It utilizes the old Roman catechism. Yeah, yeah. So clearly we're to use both. Yeah. So uh, where where exactly does this does this catechism of the Catholic Church come from? How is how, how is that its promulgation unique? Has, has there ever been a catechism like the Catechism of the Catholic Church? How how was it made um, in, in stuff like that? So long story short, in 1985, they were having a 20 year anniversary, I guess, of of the maybe anniversary, maybe just simply 20 years after the second Vatican council. I'm not so, so sure it was an anniversary considering all the circumstances that have happened after the second Vatican council, but you get what I'm saying. 20 years after the closing of the second Vatican council, they held um, an extraordinary synod of bishops and were discussing how effective has Vatican II actually been, um, how, how effective have we been, especially as, as the bishops in, implementing the second vatican council there in fact you need to go and read the whole document if you haven't already i found it to be very helpful and i reviewed it on on one show but at the very end they call for a catechism of the catholic church a new and updated one to deal with um well quite a few issues but to provide something that we can be all be on the same page with that is up to date I mean, the previous catechism was, of course, the Roman catechism, and it was outdated on some issues doctrinally. I mean, it doesn't address indulgences, for example. Um, and there have been some dogmas promulgated since then. And there have clearly been some developments as well, even in the preconciliar era. So they wanted to have, you know, something that we could all be on the same page with that is also up to date. And so John Paul II uh, took their counsel and implemented it. In, in, in 1992, uh, he was able to promulgate a document, which is the product of a handful of bishops and cardinals and well-trained theologians. Um, and the outline of it is incredibly similar. If you, In fact, it's the same as far as the outline of the Roman Catechism, the one promulgated by the Council of Trent, um, although it was promulgated after, a year after Trent had... Um, had ended. So very technically, it's not an act of the magisterium or even an act of the Council of Trent. But they did ask for a catechism, and that was the result of it. So again, there were quite a few trained theologians. They used the outline of the pre previous Roman catechism for this new catechism, um, but just had some things that were more up to date in it. So that's effectively, I mean, in a nutshell, the, the history behind it. Okay, how does for for Catholics in in having all of these all of these catechisms that throughout the history of the Church we've had catechisms such as the Council of Trent, we've had catechism of Pope Pius the Tenth, we've had local catechisms. There's there's plenty of catechisms to draw from uh, locally and also historically. So how does the uh, catechism of the Catholic Church differ from those, and how does it continue to relate to those other catechisms? Well, the, the current catechism differs from local catechisms insofar as it is not just for the local church, but it's for the universal church, and it's a norm of norms. It assumes, however, and in fact recommends, that others in local territories will still have their own catechisms. Um, so those are good, and those are norms for those territories, but you might need a norm for those norms, and that's what the uh, catechism of the council, uh, I'm sorry, catechism of John Paul II is. It's a sure norm and a norm of norms, if you will. Um, but again, it doesn't exclude others. Um, and it also doesn't exclude previous ones, clearly, because as I noted, it's drawing from the Roman catechism. So it still kind of assumes that you're going to be using the old Roman catechism as well, local catechisms, and maybe even the catechism of the council. I'm sorry, of Pius X. Now, you asked what are some of the differences. Um, one that I can think of is the Roman Catechism after Trent was called for by, as I noted, the Council Fathers, but wasn't actually promulgated by them. It was a year after they disbanded. So, again, to reiterate, it's technically not a product of the Council of Trent or the Magisterium um, at Trent. 
um, but it was something that they called for. It was for priests, however, mostly. It wasn't really designed for laity. It was designed for priests and especially to kind of get them on the same page because a lot of the priests weren't very well trained in theology at the time, and they definitely weren't on the same page. So that's the purpose behind it. And it did very well at getting priests on the same page and, and well-trained in theology and something uh, something popular that they could give to the masses. So I think it was very, very successful. Um, but again, it does not have any kind of magisterial authority behind it. Um, the You mentioned there the Catechism of Pius X. That was actually written when he was a bishop. So it's not even a catechism of a pope. It's a catechism of a bishop who later became a pope. It's good. I think it's helpful. Mm-hmm. I, I, there, there might be some parts on there that you know could could use some updating, but on the whole, it's good. I, I like it. I've recommended it before. So with the with the current catechism, it's completely mm-hmm. completely unique with its uh, with this was really something big and uh, groundbreaking that the magisterium hasn't done before. Yeah, because this isn't designed for just priests. It's designed for everyone, including laity. So it's definitely different with than previous catechisms. It's not a local catechism. It's for the universal church, and it's not just for priests. It's for everyone, priests okay. and laity, you okay. know, clergy so, and laity. Uh, I remember reading in the beginning of, of of the catechism in the little prologue section yeah. that it was it was meant for the making of local catechisms, and I've also seen like the catechism of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, yes. the catechism yes. of the Council of Bishops. Are those uh, mm-hmm. edits of the catechism mm-hmm. of the Catholic Church? Are they well, what are they? Um, I mean, you, you're you're right in noting that it um, it called for other other catechisms and. Um, you do see like Christ our Pascha by the Ukrainian Catholic Church, which is also used by other Eastern Catholic churches in the United States. In fact, I use that one. Um, and, and I'm in the Ruthenians. So I it, it definitely is kind of a product of, of this era. But it's not, you know, kind of copy and paste catechism yeah. from the catechism of the council. Or I'm sorry, uh, of uh, John Paul II. It, it's unique. It's definitely um, Eastern in its approach. But you, it, it definitely is in accord with the calling for other catechisms. Absolutely. It's, it's in that vein and it's in that inspiration. But, I, but if you're asking, is it, is it actually influenced by the content? I mean, mm-hmm. You might have a little bit here and there, but it's, it's coming from an Eastern approach. Okay. Yeah, I also noticed something else which is really helpful, and this this is a bit off topic, um, and you don't have to comment if you don't want. But in in the in the prologue to the catechism, it also talks about it being a document, and and in the text of the catechism itself, if I'm remembering correctly, it talks about it being a document which is meant for ecumenism. That when we when we step up to the table with Protestants, we mm-hmm. say, "Here, this is what we believe. Uh, check the boxes where you disagree. We can talk yeah. about it." And I think yeah. that's one of the most helpful parts of the catechism. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's it's a good compendium of the faith, right? I mean, um, if you want others to know what we believe, they could sit down and read 2,000 years of documents. They could. Most people aren't going to. It's hard enough getting them to read the Bible, let alone 2,000 years <laughs> of documents. Um, it might even be a challenge for them to just read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, but you might be able to point them to a particular section and say, yeah, here, here's a quick summary. For example, I actually had somebody the other day ask, well, what does the Catholic church believe about the part in the creed where Jesus descended into hell? What does that mean? He descended into hell. Well, conveniently, there's a paragraph directly on that and summarizes what we mean by it. And you can send that to the person. It's very, very helpful when it comes to these discussions with non-Catholics. So yeah, I agree. So a bit with the, with the, this is kind of off topic too. I'm sorry for throwing all these uh, these these curveballs at you. But with with the purpose of of the catechism, is it meant to cover every single little detail, or is it mm-hmm. just meant to give broad strokes about okay, the, these are the uh, mm-hmm. the walls in which theologians have to have to stay within, and you have some wiggle room within those walls. I wouldn't explain it as either, actually. Um, well, uh, the, there was a part in the former that I would agree. You you had mentioned that it kind of broad strokes. Yes, that's definitely it. It's not there to give you every jot and tittle. Um, but that last part there where you had, had, had mentioned that it kind of outlines the boundaries. In some cases it does, only insofar as it is reiterating that which is already definitive. 
Mm-hmm. But here's the key. It doesn't make something definitive just because it's in there. So just because it's in there doesn't mean it is automatically a boundary that you couldn't exceed. So I, ju- I just want to be careful and kind of hedge against that notion. Now, when it expresses that Jesus is consubstantial with the Father, is that a boundary? Of course it is. Yeah. But that's because it was already set by Nicaea 1, right? So, um, so yeah, it, it's definitely there to kind of be paint with a broad brush. And then it assumes that local catechisms will go into further detail and that theologians would go into further detail and that prior magisterial documents would be consulted as well. Okay. Now we're going to get into a bit of the meat and you kind of, you kind of covered it a a bit, Mm -hmm. but what exactly is the magisterial weight of the catechism? Because I can think of a few options. First, Mm -hmm. I could think, okay, because it's in the catechism, it's being given Mm -hmm. a, a sort of weight greater than uh, what it was given before. And I can Mm -hmm. think of a different option where we kind of look into the footnotes. Okay, this was just a papal address. Okay, it's given Mm -hmm. the weight of a papal address. Okay, this was an ecumenical council. It's given the weight of an ecumenical council. So which one of those two approaches, or is there a different approach whereby we regard the weight of the separate propositions and then the catechism as a whole? Yeah, there's multiple options here, and there's definitely not a definitive understanding um, when it comes to this question, but there are individuals like Radzinger. In fact, I have it pulled up in front of me because this is kind of one of those things that's really helpful to note. It, there's his opinion, and then I can mention some others that you alluded to there. He he says this of the catechism. The individual doctrine which the catechism presents receives no other weight than that which they already possess. The weight of the catechism itself lies in the whole. Okay, so what he wants to say is the individual doctrines and propositions that are in the catechism, just by, well, they are just as authoritative, whether or not they're actually in the catechism or not. They're just as authoritative um, because they were previously taught by the magisterium elsewhere. By being added to the catechism, does that increase its weight? He wants to say no. He wants to say no. Just by being added to the catechism, that doesn't increase its weight. It has the same weight that it had before it it was added to the catechism. And it is just as weighty as, you know, what on whatever source it relies. That is one option, right? I want to say, however, even if that's true, it doesn't consider reception and the role that reception plays in increasing the weight of a magisterial proposition. So, and I haven't seen anyone really address this in depth and, and it's unfortunate. I I think that, you know, there, there needs to be some work here. Even if we can see that, okay, proposition X from the council of Nicaea is inserted in or from this or that council. Let me not even say Nicaea because we'll all automatically think definitive proposition X from this or that council is inserted into the catechism. Um, it's going to have a certain level of authority, the same level that it had prior to its insertion. But I want to argue that over time, the reception of this in the catechism by the faithful, the reception might actually increase it. So if you actually have maybe something taught by a Pope in just, let's say it's just taught in a papal address, pretty low level magisterium, right? Really low level, Uh, but it's inserted into the catechism. Okay. It's, it's still, it's authoritative, but it's only authoritative insofar as it relies on pretty low level magisterium. But what if this is received over 200 years by the faithful and by the universal church? Is it still merely, you know, papal Mm. address, low-level magisterium? I would argue that it's gone beyond that, not because necessarily the magisterium has taught taught it more than that, but because it has been received by the faithful. And likewise, maybe something that is taught by a papal address that is not really received by the faithful over a long period of time. I could see that actually decreasing in weight. Um, So he doesn't really, to my knowledge, interact with that factor. And and I think that that's unfortunate, although you you can't address every single thing in Mm. in, in the interview or book. So (laughs) I I get that he didn't address, address that. I'm not faulting him for it. Although I'd love to hear his thoughts on it, you know, um, there is that option. You could also say that, 
okay, by virtue of its insertion into the catechism that gives it greater magisterial authority. I would, I would ask how, how, what increases magisterial authority would be the frequency by which it's taught, uh, the force by which it's taught. And this is by the magisterium, not by individuals, by the magisterium, the frequency by which it's taught, the force, the document that it's in. Um, the catechism of the Catholic church is not a magisterial document per se. Um, it's promulgated by a magisterial document, but it in and of itself is not a magisterial document. Um, so I, I'm, 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 I'm scratching my head asking, well, how does this increase the weight just because it's inserted into a non-magisterial document? I don't, I don't see that. I'm open to the idea. I'm open to the concept. I just, I, I haven't figured out how that works. Um, because again, to my knowledge of what increases or decreases the weight of a magisterial proposition, um, I'm not seeing any of those factors employed here with the catechism of the Catholic church other than, other than reception. And I don't think we've had enough time for any kind of real reception at the catechism of the Catholic church. It was promulgated in 92. So, uh, <laughs> you know, 30, 30 years or so later, um, I, I would give it several hundred years from now, and then we could maybe yeah. talk about reception of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I don't know. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, that does. That does really help um, because it it seems like from from the options that that you're presenting, there's there's one idea where it could be like uh, where you have these the ranks of different magisterial authority, and the Catechism comes kind of just like boom, pushing up the the lower ones to the same grade and keeping the higher ones the same and the other one doesn't really have that it's just retaining uh whatever its original documentation but my question is um wouldn't the fact that it's uh that that the magisterium um i'm, I'm trying to word myself very carefully <laughs> to make sure i'm keeping mm -hmm. in line uh promulgated it in a sense it seems like you're saying that it's in a sense being promulgated mm -hmm. what wouldn't that wouldn't that per se increase increase the weight like let's say you had some like seventh century random document and the magisterium puts it in the catechism wouldn't that wouldn't that make it at least twice as frequent as as it was before or at least the first time it's entered the magisterium i get that my here's the pushback i would offer though when he promulgates it is he promulgating every individual proposition or is he promulgating this thing as a whole and is he promulgating it maybe every individual proposition as authoritative as it was prior to its, this promulgation. He's just kind of collecting them all together. Um, so one could even say, okay, well, yeah, he is promulgating every individual proposition and they're not just like the thing as a whole. He's, he's promulgating everything individually. He's gone through it all. And he's, because after all, the catechism of the Catholic church is under papal magisterium. It's not under some kind of um, it's not under the bishops or anything like that. When we talk about this being promulgated by the magisterium, it's promulgated by the Pope. Did the Pope go through it every line individually and say yes to this proposition? Yes to this proposition. No to that one. Uh, take that one out. Yes to this one. No to that one. Take one that. I don't know. He doesn't actually say. So some might say, well, he's just promulgating the thing as a whole, not necessarily every individual proposition. And others might say, well, no, he's promulgating every individual proposition. But then the question is, does that increase the weight, the magisterial weight of each proposition? Or is he just merely promulgating them in so far as they're, well, he's merely promulgating them to be just as authoritative as they were prior to their insertion. In other words, he might not have any intention to increase the weight he might not have have any intention to uh say yeah this is actually now more authoritative than it was back when it was written in the seventh century i think you would kind of have to show that the pope had that intention right with 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 each proposition i and so i, I wrestle with that idea i i get where you're coming from but I'm, I'm trying to see how how would that work um does that help help any though Yes, yes, it does. And I got to go grab my charger. So we're going to take yeah, a yeah, brief, yeah, no brief ad break real quick. Mm -hmm. okay. 
Join my Patreon at patreon.com slash militantomist. You get access to more articles and videos. And if you'd like to help in another way, buy a militantomist mug. Lastly, you can buy a book from militantomist press. See options below. Also, if you prefer audio, check us out on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Join the Discord to get involved. And if you're a patron, you get access to other Discord channels. Also, destroy that like and subscribe button and comment to annihilate that algorithm. Lastly, the show is brought to you by Fluent Greek. I'm sure you've forgotten your seminary Greek and need to get it back or just want to learn Greek to read sacred scripture in its original language. That's why Fluent is here. Using modern pedagogical techniques, it has set it up so that you are reading Greek from the very beginning and learn Greek how you're supposed to learn it through reading. Greek. It sorts the New Testament by verse from easiest to hardest and then gives space repetition of these verses so that you can read Greek as soon as possible. Even better, it is only 15 bucks a month to use. But if you use the code militant, you can get 20% off and help the show. Go to fluentgreek.com to learn more. And the link is in the description. Okay, I'm back. Remember, guys, we're going to have a bit of Q&A after this in about probably 10 minutes. So if you send Sorry. questions, then I can. I thought, I thought I would have enough time to grab the coffee, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, my ad, I put my ad on like one and a half times speed because people get yeah. I know people get annoyed by ads. So I just, I put that baby up in speed. I was wondering why it sounded really fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, my thoughts, my thoughts to that is I, I just. Because reading through the catechism, you you don't only get magisterial propositions being given. You'll get it quoting for, for example, they'll take a sentence out of the Summa. And now when, when you're looking at that proposition in the Summa, it's going to come with all of these uh, presuppositions of right. um, of uh, metaphysics. It's going to come right. through with the entire argument of the entire article and the entire question, the entire se uh, section. So yeah. it, it seems like, uh, at least from that perspective, that not only would these magisterial propositions have to, by that position, increase in weight, but also each, each of these theologians who may disagree, because a lot of them do disagree on certain points, e each of those would also have to be increased. And I think yeah. that would be a bit problematic. What are your thoughts on that? I agree with you. I, I don't I don't think it works. But again, I'm open to somebody, you know, changing my mind on the matter. I, I have no dog in the fight either way. But to me, it seems more like the intention of the Pope here in his magisterium was to collect, you know, a, a teachings, disciplines and put them together in a concise place where everybody can consult easily. And that has been promulgated authoritatively but not necessarily every individual thing in there with the intention of increasing its weight um moreover does that also then if if everything individually in there was intended to be somehow um authoritatively taught by virtue of its addition does that mean that you know, whenever a pope were to reform a part of the catechism, that he's reversing magisterial doctrine. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's possible, right? I mean, it's possible for a pope to, or even an ecumenical council, to reverse non-definitive authoritative teachings. But I just, to to me, I'm not seeing it. I mean, I think again, theoretically, it's possible to take that position that you described, but I just, I think it's much less likely, um, from what I could tell. And it seems like Ratzinger, you know, a person who should know because he was, yeah. um, he was kind of on the on the team in in creating the uh, catechism. He was kind of at the head of it, so I, I would think that he would know what the intention was whenever this thing was promulgated. So I, I have to go with Helm unless somebody can convince me why Ratzinger, who was in the know, mm -hmm. why he's wrong. Yeah, that's that's another that's you, you brought up another problem that I might have with that position is that now that there's these these edits of the catechism, then that would be if 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 it does change, then that's a magisterial yeah. reversal. Which... Is, is that a reversal? Now, again, is it possible to have a reversal? Yes. So theoretically, that could happen if if one were to take this position, that's still possible. But I just think it's incredibly unlikely. Mm -hmm. OK, so the next question I have is you kind of touched on this. But uh, besides Ratzinger, is is there any uh, any other magisterial documents after the promulgation of the catechism besides what occurs in the promulgation itself from the magisterium talking about the catechism? You're talking about af after John Paul II's document promulgating it? Yes, yes. Well, I guess yeah. we could we could say the the promulgation of the of, of the revision. But uh, is there anything yeah, yeah. else besides those? I haven't seen anything. Um, 
but I haven't seen everything that is out there. Right. But mm-hmm. I, I'm not familiar with anything. Have, have you encountered anything additional? I, I have, I have not uh, myself. The difficulty here has been, and I, and I've looked, uh, cause I get this a lot and I, and I just, it, it's, it's really relevant to the question of weighing magisterial propositions. So I've, I've looked in it and I've also looked at some scholars who have studied this and it really doesn't seem to be that there's a whole lot there, which is unfortunately, it's very unfortunate. And that's kind of why I'm actually hoping to help offset that with my own magisterial studies in the future. Hopefully I can talk about some of these things and develop them a little bit more in the future. Obviously from a non-authoritative perspective, um, it would be much better if the magisterium could offer something authoritative, but we, we, we know oftentimes they tend to be pretty slow on these things. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good uh, thing and, uh, and a bad thing too. It's a good okay. thing and a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's get, and this is going to be the last question I have for you. Then we'll turn to some, some Q and a from the chat. So the big thing everybody's been wondering about, I get this question like, a million times a day. And that's a bit of an over-exaggeration, but it is at least, at least multiple times a week. And I'm sure you get the same question, but what about the revision on the death penalty? Where, because it seems at least when, when I read it, I, I talking to some friends that it's, it's a bit suspect in some of the, in some of the wording there, there's a way in which I could have uh, interpreted it in an orthodox sense, but I, I don't necessarily buy the argument. And then if you look in the footnote, it's uh, it's uh, the Holy Father quoting one of his own addresses, which I don't know the the weight of that specific proposition. If you could if you get in that, too, that would be wonderful. But what is what is your take on on that in general? Yeah. And as, as far as the last part there, um, the source on which it relies, a papal address, it's pretty low. It is authoritative, but it's pretty mm-hmm. low. Um now, I will also say that the letter to the bishops, let me pull it up, I have it right here. So yeah, the letter to the bishops regarding the new revision published by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith is itself magisterial. Mm-hmm. So even if you want to say, well, okay, the uh, d- this insertion in the catechism you know, merely relies on a papal address, and papal address is really low magisterium. True. Uh, but you also have the letter that's accompanying the insertion by the CDF specifically approved by the Pope that makes it magisterial because some documents of the CDF might not be approved by the Pope. In that case, they're not magisterial. They're not under his, um, the papal magisterium. Uh, so they're not binding on one's conscience. But whenever the Pope um, gives his personal approbation to, whether in specific form or common form, to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, it becomes authoritative. Uh, In specific form, it becomes even more authoritative because that means he's gone through line by line on the thing. Uh, Just kind of general and common form means that he's he's somebody read it to him basically and he kind of approved the whole thing but didn't go through the thing line by line right um although this document's pretty pretty um pretty short so i'm pretty sure that he (laughs) he went through the thing um so it's magisterial it's authoritative so we can't easily dismiss it now as far as the content itself right you're you're I, i guess you're kind of asking what do i think about the revision itself well, well, yeah, first, before you get into that, um, what is what is us? Because I'm assuming everybody watching, I think there might be one priest watching right now. He he kind of comes back and forth. But uh, what is us as as laymen, as theologically interested laymen? Um, what where, where's the limits that the magisterium has placed on us uh, when, when it comes to uh, agreeing or disagreeing with with this um, with this proposition? So. What the magisterium teaches, it's it's the approximate rule of faith. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's whenever it rules on something, um, that should really catch our attention. And we often are to assume that the magisterium knows a lot better than we do on the more remote rules of faith, mm-hmm. such as scripture and things like that. So if the magisterium were to say one thing about scripture and I think something else by reading scripture, um, the magisterium is the proximate rule of faith. So it, 
and it's also much more likely that the magisterium got it right and I got it wrong. So yeah. um, my assent should, in 99% of the time, uh, should go with what the magisterium is saying. Although it has said that uh, for individual laymen who are well-trained in theology, not just randoms, well-trained in theology, yeah. and who have really looked through the issues being addressed by the magisterium, if in their conscience they still find it hard to assent to something non-definitive, non-definitive is, is key. We're not talking about definitive teachings, right? You don't have the ability to withhold assent there. But in non-definitive teachings for a well-trained theologian who has really looked through the issues and who has trouble with it in their conscience, they could withhold assent of intellect and will in very rare cases. Um I think that that the only case that w could ever happen is when somebody who, who is very skilled in theology has um, come across something else taught by the magisterium seemingly with greater authority. And then the magisterium promulgates something with a lower authority. You might at that point say, well, this proposition outweighs that proposition. So I, I can't give assent to this one because my assent is already owed to this other magisterial proposition. It contradicts it, and I don't see a way to reconcile them. And I've done my diligence in trying to reconcile them, and I just don't see it. In that rare case, it allows one to withhold a sense of intellect and will. Is that really what's going on with 99% of the people who are, re are rejecting um, what the Holy Father is promulgating here with the death penalty? Probably not. I doubt very seriously. Most people who have looked into this, well, who have considered the death penalty issue, know anything about weighing magisterial propositions, have ever read Donum Veritatis, which goes over the guidelines for um, assent among theologians and, and such. So I doubt very seriously they've really looked into the issue. So they probably don't have, um, they're probably not in a position where they could um, genuinely withhold assent. And in such cases, it, it, it then actually becomes a matter of sin, right? Um, if you are withholding assent to the magisterium, um, without good reasons to withhold that assent, right? Without mm -hmm. fully informing yourself and still having then reservations, there could then be an element of sin because it's now dissent from authoritative, uh, the authoritative shepherds that Christ has um, put in charge of us. So again, I want to say that it, in very rare cases, one could withhold assent, but I think in the vast majority of cases, people probably aren't meeting the criteria there in Donum Veritatis. Um, now, maybe we, we do you want to briefly talk about the um, death penalty itself and the revision itself? Yeah. With with the 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 way in which I could I could think, just thinking on my feet right here. I mean, I have thought about this issue before, but. Mm -hmm. um, the way that I could think how people could get out of it and the and the thing that I would put forward myself is, well, um, what if we took it as being a prudential decision? Because mm -hmm. obviously the church before mm -hmm. has herself uh, um, in in the fact that there was a uh, there was the papal kingdom in the, in the medieval church. There, the church itself has uh, executed people. There was a papal executor and such. So, uh, and in, as taught such in, in certain documents. So could I say that it's, well, it's just a prudential decision by the Holy Father. And since it's a prudential decision, I, I could just say that I do not find it to be prudent. Could, could somebody go from that direction on this issue? Yeah, you, you could in, um, partially, uh, there's a little bit more to it than that, but there's some, there's some truth to what you're saying. And, you know, I actually would probably put myself among, you know, the, the, the description of that person to an extent, um, insofar as I would say that him noting that the death penalty today is inadmissible, inadmissible pertains to discipline. Um, now, what he bases it on, we, we can have a discussion on that, but um that is a prudential decision. That is a disciplinary decision. So insofar as it's prudential and disciplinary, um, you could question such things. However, I do want to say that there is an assent owed to disciplinary 
and prudential decisions, and that is obedience. But I don't imagine most of us are in the position of imposing or withdrawing the death penalty. So it's kind of hard to speak of obedience in this case because, you know, I don't really have that authority over anybody. So um, now if I were maybe a governor or something, there, there, there might could be an issue of disobedience in some cases. Um, but tabling that issue. Yes, we can speak about some aspects of this being a prudential and disciplinary decision. And I, I put that forward myself, you know, and I have put that forward myself in other shows. That's only the half of it. That's only part of the issue. Uh, the other part is there is some doctrinal development at play. Um, and the doctrinal development pertains to the dignity of the human person. So that has been developed doctrinally an awareness of the dignity of the human person and that they don't lose their dignity even after an act like murder. A recognition of that, that has been developed. Uh, so I don't want to say that that's merely prudential. I do want to say that there has been a doctrinal development here. And that has impacted the prudential decision. But that's not the only reason for the prudential decision. If you look at the accompanying letter to the bishops on the uh, revision to the death penalty and the catechism, they're explicit as to not only is it that we've become more aware of the dignity of the human person, and that's influencing why this is now inadmissible, but the real thrust of this is it wants to say we're in a society today where the death penalty is no longer needed to secure the uh to secure the safety of citizens. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer necessary. And since it is against their dignity and it's not absolutely necessary, it's now inadmissible. And it does acknowledge in previous ages, they may not have necessarily had a penal system that could have secured the safety of the citizens. So though this was an extreme measure, it was acceptable. It recognizes that tacitly. Um, so it's not saying that this is somehow, um, that this is intrinsically evil, the death penalty, because mm -hmm. it recognizes there have been periods and times where it was legitimate, but maybe a little extreme. But it wants to say now in light of our penal system today, it's no longer necessary. And because there are other ways of securing people's safety, it would be inadmissible and even against the gospel insofar as if there are other means to secure people's safety, you're now unnecessarily violating the dignity of this human person. And that would be contrary to the gospel. Therefore, it's inadmissible. It's disciplinary. It's disciplinary partially based on assumptions of fact, assumptions on what our penal system is like today, a matter of fact. And also assumptions on a development of doctrine of the dignity of the human person. Mm -hmm. um, but it's so again, I want to say that it's it's not necessarily saying that it's intrinsically evil. It's just saying that it's in, inadmissible today because there are other means um, to secure people's safety. Now, you might question that. You might say, but wait, is that really the case with all penal systems in every country? Is that really the case? Are are all countries in this state or are there mm. some countries that might actually have to have recourse to that? And insofar as you ask those questions and, and especially if they're legitimate, I think you might be able to offer some legitimate pushback to the inadmissible aspect, but the aspect that is about the dignity of the human person, I think is authoritative. And I don't think that it contradicts anything prior that the magisterium is taught with a greater weight. Therefore, I think we have to ascend to that. So I think okay. we need to ascend to the development of doctrine about the dignity of the human person that it expresses. If you're in a position to impose or withdraw the death penalty on a person, you might need to really consider whether or not you're going to be obedient to this prudential decision and, and wrestle with that. And then again, insofar as you might challenge some of the assumptions behind this about our penal system, you could maybe offer some pushback on the, inadmissible disciplinary part yes yes so i i think also we need to just brief before we get into q a um i think we also need to think about the way in which law functions because when it comes to uh what 
human law, not not uh, natural law or divine law. When it comes to human law, the way in which human law is made, it's a prudential application of the natural law in regard to the good of the polis. So when it comes to the death penalty in previous ages, that was the best way in mm -hmm. which the magistrates mm -hmm. were applying natural law right. um, to, to certain things um, for the good yeah. of the polis. Now, for the good of the polis, we don't necessarily need to because we have things like prisons. Right. Prisons didn't really exist uh, beforehand. Right. So I, I think that's also a consideration where people yeah. are uh, they're being biblicist and they're yeah. not really thinking through the issues of the way in which law functions, because most of these people aren't aren't uh, legal scholars. Some of them are. Some of them are really good legal scholars that are writing about it. But the randoms you get online that rage about this, it'll it'll be more so them thinking like, well, Bible says X, Magisterium says X, and they're not considering the why behind each one of these aspects. If you look at the yeah. why, they're actually really just applying the same exact principle in different yeah. accidental situations. Yeah, th this is not contrary to anything that scripture has said this there's a way to understand everything that pope francis has promulgated here in accord with what scripture teaches not only only in the old testament but also the new testament with saint paul in the book of romans so um i don't think that there's a conflict if you understand it properly but i think a, a lot of people don't really look enough into it so, so they just kind of jump the gun and use this as an opportunity to say that the Pope is a heretic or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't find the, that approach to be very, very helpful. Um, so, yeah. Okay, we're going to get into some mm -hmm. Q&A. So how much longer uh, do you got? I don't want to hold you too long. Oh, I, I, I got a little bit of time, uh, 15, 20 minutes or so. Okay. Uh, yeah, can, can I grab my coffee, though? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Okay? All right, one second. <clears throat> Okay, how are you all doing? Uh, let me let me see through the all the messages I starred. Gotta get all the best ones. All right. Okay, so first one's a quick one. So, have any of you guys read the Catechism of Gerlamo Savarali? Oh, Dr oh, that Savonrola. That's that's the guy the the proto-reformer. <laughs> right. I know who that is now. No, I haven't. Uh, that would be an interesting read, though. So, Yeah, uh, no, I'm not, I haven't either. Okay, so question is, is the death penalty a part of natural law or can it be changed as a discipline? Uh, yes, the death penalty. Uh, the death penalty is not a part of natural law. So a lot of times when people think of natural law, they think about things inherent in, 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 in certain things. But really, natural law, the way that St. Thomas describes it, is it's a participation in the uh, in the ideas in the divine mind, wherein God has the, the the forms of certain things. So natural law participates that participates in that uh, those eternal ideas in in respect to things in nature. So then human law is is really just an application of that divine law. So really none of our individual propositions are part of natural law, but they're really just an application of natural law. So it's not it's not part of a natural law, but it's just application of natural law itself. So I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Yeah, I agree with you. It's an application and therefore it could be reformed to some extent. Yeah. So also the um the the change of a discipline is also part part of an application of natural law. They're applying the same principles. And mm -hmm. we have to understand we have to when we do theology, we need to start thinking more on the the application of principles, especially when it comes to uh when it comes to making law, because law is very much an application of principles. It takes prudence. It's not necessarily like a calculator. It, it does take a lot of prudence when it makes to come. Oh, yeah. yeah, I agree with you. Okay. So, so here's, I, I've had this thought um, and you might be able to help him here. Mm -hmm. So Justin, the Catholic says these magisterial distinctions, nuances are too scribe and Levitical for my taste. Good for apologetics, but for a, for, for a Catholic confirmed in the faith, it gets away from simple faith obedience of a child. What are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, I understand the, you know, the gist behind this and there's a little truth to it, but I don't think that it's possible to really maintain that consistently and be a Catholic or just a faithful Christian. Um, how can you be a Chalcedonian Christian and say that? I mean, really, mm -hmm. I mean, think about it for a moment. The distinctions that are involved to yep. be a Chalcedonian Trinitarian Christian. There's some pretty serious distinctions that need to be made when it comes to the Trinity, 
and uh, the person of Christ in order to be a Trinitarian Chalcedonian, which I would hope every Catholic is. In fact, every Catholic is dogmatically required to be so. And, and he's just a, just in the Catholic, so I'm assuming he's Catholic. Um, so I don't think it's possible to maintain this simplistic you know, obedience of a child. There's some truth to this obedience of a child. Jesus speaks about that, right? Uh, to have a simple faith. But he's not saying that we need to have a simplistic faith. He's saying we need to have a simple faith insofar as we should readily assent to what lawful authority teaches us, those who Christ has put over us and God has put over us. That's what he's referring to. He's not saying that our faith itself should be simplistic. Um, so if you don't like nuances, don't like new, you know distinctions, I don't see how you could be a Trinitarian Chalcedonian. Mm. Okay, so the, I've been wondering about this one too. This is a good question. AJ asks, my question is, when do private devotions turn into proper doctrine? How can the church complete the consecration of Russia and still claim it's a choice by the faithful? Yeah, so when do private devotions turn into proper doctrine? Um, for sure, whenever they are promulgated by the magisterium, whether liturgically or doctrinally, we can speak about this happening with maybe some of the Marian um, devotions. Um, some of that it came into the liturgy and then informed our doctrine. So I, I think that most certainly whenever it's uh, promulgated liturgically or doctrinally, you could say that it's actually proper doctrine because liturgy informs our doctrine. So that's why I'm including liturgy there. Um, how can the church complete the consecration of Russia and still claim it's a choice by the faithful? Um, it's it's interesting because Sister Lucia says that it has already been, uh, Russia has already been consecrated. So I, I think that uh, Sister Lucia herself, the visionary, might offer some pushback against the idea that it hasn't already happened. She believed that it already happened in 1984 by John Paul II. So um, I don't know if that really answers the question, though. I think it's coming back to, because I've I've made comments previously thinking about uh, the devotional life. Mm -hmm. And as, as somebody who's a former Anglican, and I'm sure it's the same way uh, being a Byzantine, is mm -hmm. that we have a particular devotion to the to the liturgy the hours to the breviary um to the orologium uh, for mm. for you um so so when it comes to comparing public to private devotions mm -hmm. that if you have the time um the pride of place is always taken by public devotions of the church mm -hmm. which is the the public prayer of the church since the beginning it has been the, the liturgy the hours and that private private devotions are more or less indispensable and you can you really have a broadness of choice and they're great and everything, but the, a, a very central focus in the life of the Catholic should be the, the breviary and the hours. So I think that's what it's coming back to. And I, and I think there's asking with that second part, but you know, the aspect of the faithful doing their part, how could the church speak of it completing uh, the consecration? I, I, I think that what it's saying is that the church, as far as the bishops have done their part, now the rest remains to the faithful to do their part with the first, you know, with, with the devotions on uh, the first Saturdays and so, and so on. So I, th I think that that's, uh, you know, answering their question, but maybe if they can offer a follow-up, if that didn't get to it. Okay. So Bonaventure asks, does a catechism promulgated by an ecumenical council, i.e. the council of Trent, have any more weight than the current catechism, or is it more or less the same weight? Well, actually, Trent did not promulgate uh, the Roman catechism. Again, Trent had already disbanded and um, for a year before the Roman catechism was promulgated. So um, it was not promulgated, but it was upon their request. Um, but again, they did not look over the catechism and say, yes, we approve this thing. Boom, send it out. That never happened. That did not happen. What they just said is we need a catechism, basically. That's it. It could have been anything that was promulgated afterwards. That doesn't necessarily mean that they approved of everything. Um, so does a catechism promulgated by an ecumenical council, such as Council of Trent, which I question that, have any more weight than the current catechism? No, it actually has less 
um, less authority because, again, the target audience and intention of the Roman Catechism was for um, priests, not everyone, whereas the target, I think, is broader uh, today. So I think that that makes it a little bit more authoritative for us. If we're going to be speaking about authoritative, I, I, I would avoid that word just because it has magisterial connotations. Um, so hopefully that helps answer, answer the question. Okay. So somebody, um, Justin, the Catholic asked another question. He said, how should we read catechism, the Catholic church, paragraph mm -hmm. 120, the old covenant was never revoked in light mm -hmm. of Galatians and Hebrews and the condemnations of Marcion. That mm -hmm. may be a source of dual covenant theology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I guess I don't read, uh, the church with such skepticism. I, I think that I, I just try to afford it a little bit more of, um, the judgment of charity, but I, I suppose it's a legitimate question. Those who are struggling, you know, with this, how, how do we reconcile these things? I think that, um, it's not saying that the mosaic law, you know, that some of the, those aspects haven't been, fulfilled. That's not what it's saying. Um, but the old covenant has never been revoked insofar as Romans speaks about this, insofar as the calling and promises of God will not be revoked. And what God called and promised um, in the Old Testament will be fulfilled. Some of those aspects we're still awaiting. I think that that's what it's referring to, the way that the book of Romans puts it. Um, the callings of God are irrevocable in that sense, not in the sense that, okay, the Mosaic law is still in place and the, especially the Levitical laws is still in place. And so we need to go and sacrifice goats and lambs and bulls and offer them on an altar. And that's not what it's saying. And it's also not saying that, well, Jews need to do that in order to be saved. So they need to go and sacrifice bulls and goats and rams. And we need to not do so, but just trust in Christ. That's not what it's saying. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, I found a good quote from St. Clement of Alexandria that I thought of. Uh, Therefore, in substance and idea, in origin and eminence, we say that the ancient and Catholic Church is alone, gathering into the unity of the one faith, the faith that comes from the two covenants, or rather the one covenant in different times by the will of the one God and through the one Lord those already chosen whom God predestined knowing before the foundation of the world that they would be righteous. I mean, yeah. And then there's also the quote from, uh, from uh, Romans. It's really good. And, uh, and oftentimes when, when I run into these issues with the catechism, for example, with, uh, with the idea of the, um, the Muslims adoring the one God and, and stuff like that. When I, when I run into them, I, I always find that they're drawn from some biblical text. And then when you read the proposition in light of that biblical text, then you get what you get what they're saying in, mm -hmm. a, in the light of, of the dogmatic statement from scripture. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Alexander Kushk, he asks, could Lofton uh, tell us how we can, how we are to receive Laudato Si? Mm -hmm. I did not see a signature in my quick look of it. Is it part of the magisterium? Uh, let me check. It's been a while since I've looked at it. And frankly, I didn't even read the whole thing. It doesn't really pertain to anything that I go over a lot. So I don't necessarily have to uh, be informed by every jot and tittle in it. Uh, but there's some people that would need to read it and be informed by everything in it. Um, but let's see. Going to the very end to just check the authority behind it. Let's see. Given in Rome, St. Peter's, May 24th, the Solemnity of Pentecost, the year 20, uh, 2015, the third of my pontificate, Franciscus. Um, okay, so he definitely signs off on it as Pope, and it is an encyclical letter. So, yeah, that that is magisterial. Um, if it's an encyclical, he and he's clearly signing off on it, um, that has been promulgated by a Pope. And that is non-definitive magisterium. Um, now, when, one thing, though, whenever we speak of documents very broadly like this in the magisterium, I don't like talking about documents very broadly because there's a lot of other factors that need to be considered. You can consider 
an encyclical and say, okay, well, an encyclical is this authoritative compared to a constitution by an ecumenical council or something. And it, this is, it's much more authoritative. You can weigh magisterial documents like that and notice that they have uh, a, a degree of difference there. But there could be individual propositions in that encyclical that might actually be more authoritative than something, an individual proposition that's really low level in a constitution. So I like looking at propositions more than just considering merely the document. The document in which the proposition is in does impact how authoritative the proposition is in. It is a factor. So we do need to consider what document type is it. But you need to go deeper than that. You need to ask, well, the proposition, however, in the document, how authoritative is it? Because what if you find something in an encyclical that is repeating something that's dogmatic? Is it just merely non-definitive magisterium just because it's in a non-definitive low-level encyclical? No, it's, it's still dogmatic. It's a non-definitive reiteration of something that's dogmatic because it was already dogmatically taught. So already you're recognizing that, okay, the frequency by which something is taught, the repetition, those things might impact the authoritative weight, which Lumen Gentium 25 confirms anyway. So I like to, again, consider more propositions more than just asking the question, what kind of document is this? Okay, so we got three more questions, if that's okay. Okay, so Original Wind Productions, he says, can one accept Pope Francis' conclusions without committing oneself to his justifications for those conclusions? On, on what? You know, on, on a matter of discipline or something? Um or maybe doctrine? Are we asking about doctrine? Yeah, I think he's. I think he's asking specifically about the reasoning given behind uh, the death penalty. Like, could mm -hmm. I? Because mm -hmm. because there is that principle that I've read yeah. before that we we yeah. we assent to the conclusion of yeah. the document. We don't necessarily right. have to assent to all the arguments right. given. Right. I I agree with that. Even if we were speaking doctrinally, I would agree with that. Much more when it comes to matters of of discipline. Yes. Okay. So. Connor wants to know that uh, whether you are planning on cloning yourself anytime soon. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, I, I don't know if that's re related to one of the sock puppet uh, uh, jokes uh, that, that's that's going around on my channel right now, where people say that um, there, there's a bunch of Michael Loftins out there, and I'm I'm in this account and that account, and really it's a sock puppet. Maybe maybe that's where that one's coming from. But uh, for, <laughs> but for to me, answer the question, no, I don't have any. For, for me, they'll say they'll say that I am Legion because I do so many videos i'll have i'll have like interviews that'll premiere at the same time i'm doing a live stream so i'll have like that's three funny. videos on youtube going on at once that's okay and then and the militant jamie militant jamie's asking if you know who i am yeah i, de I definitely do <laughs> <laughs> somebody because somebody clipped that part for one of your live streams where they asked about militant when you went Thomas. by militant Thomist. I still go by Militant Thomas. Yeah, you still I, go. I prefer okay, to put yeah, my, yeah. I prefer to but put somebody my had called you Militant Thomist, and I know you as Christian B. Wagner. And I, and I, yes, once I, I think you mentioned before that you're Militant Thomist, but I know you as Christian B. Wagner more than Militant Thomas. So I See, didn't every, everybody thought everybody thought I was coping. I, I was like, he, he knows me <laughs> by my real name, not by the my exactly I, I run by. I know and your face, like, I know your every, voice, and I know your real name. I everybody's like, you. ah, you're just you're just making this up. He has no idea who you are. I had a okay. faint recollection that wait, but is it Militant Thomas Christian B. Wagner? Is it isn't he the same guy? <laughs> So, and final one, this was very interesting, but I guess I'll expand this a little bit. But what is, what are the Eastern churches, uh, Eastern Catholic and Eastern Orthodox think about the death penalty? Is there, is this a hindrance to communion with them? Yeah, to my recollection, actually, the Russian Orthodox Church has opposed it much more strongly than uh, Pope Francis has, to my recollection. I'll need to go back and look, but yeah, that, that seems to be the case, which is kind of odd in light of the recent issues going on politically. But, uh, you know, <laughs> that's all I'll say there. <laughs> yeah. OK, so I think that's all I have. Um, I would normally ask you to to plug your stuff, but everybody already knows who you are. So if you want to if you want to plug, go ahead. Reasonintheology.com or just go to YouTube, type in Reason and Theology and the, the show will come right on up. OK, thank you, Michael, for being on. This was this was definitely great. Thanks for having me.
Okay. And everybody, I think uh, John Fisher 2.0, if you go to Original Win Productions, I'll be having a live stream right after this. And we'll be talking about the doctrine of God in relation to atheism. So thank you for being on and um, God bless.